when I was a little kid, uh, I was at my brother's baseball game with my parents and with my uh, grandma and grandpa Shirk, and uh, I was pleading with my parents for them to buy me a soda, and uh, they were horribly cruel, as my parents were sometimes, and said no, and, uh, and I told them, I'll have to drink my spit. That's what I told them. And that's something that my grandpa never forgot. Many years, uh, for many years, when my grandparents would visit us from Virginia, they would come up and, and stay for a little while. They would bring me a soda, I think usually root beer, and say, well, now you don't have to drink your spit. So that was a, an ongoing uh, joke for, for years. Thirst is an intense thing. The Garden Spot uh, Spartan Varsity Wrestling Crew, which my uh, brother was a part of in the 1980s, I absolutely loved these guys. I knew their name. We went to the matches, and uh, they had a good team, too. They would call this cottonmouth. That's what they would call it, cottonmouth. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's majorly dry mouth. There is a disorder called diabetes insipidus. You drink fluids, but you remain excessively thirsty. And this is our spiritual condition. Sin has caused a spiritual diabetes insipidus of the soul, always thirsty, a dry soul, never satisfied. Everyone's soul thirsts. It wants to drink and be satisfied. The truth is, there is water that actually and completely quenches your soul thirst. The purpose of John's book is to lead you to the fountain of living water and to help you guzzle, to guzzle from that fountain. We're we're joining John again. We're going to be in John for years, mixing in different sermon series, but we're, we're back in John. He wrote in John 20, 31, the purpose of his book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants you to believe. John wants you to drink deeply, to have refreshment and life in Christ. The first three chapters of John unmistakably lead you in the direction of the fountain. In chapter 3, Jesus pursued Nicodemus with the gospel, a pious, elite, educated, and legalistic Pharisee. And by contrast, as we're jumping to uh, chapter 4, Jesus graciously pursued the woman at the well with the gospel, an immoral, adulterer, female, Samaritan outcast. How different that is from the Pharisee. God's grace pursues all types of people. What can we learn about Jesus and ourselves from chapter 4? Jesus is divinely perceptive. He's divinely perceptive. Jesus was always in touch with what was going on around him. His popularity and influence were expanding rapidly, as well as this buzz in the religious community about his ministry, as verse 1 tells us. When Jesus learned that the religious elites knew of this ministry explosion... Um, how he was becoming more prominent than John in his disciples and, and the buzz around him, he thought it wise to move on. And I think the primary reason Jesus left Judea was because of the Pharisees, as verse 1 highlights. The conflict in Jesus' life was building to its summit in the cross. But 
His hour has, had not yet come. It wasn't his hour. It wasn't his time. Jesus leaves Judea in verse 3, not out of fear of the Pharisees, but wisdom. Jesus right, highly regarded the will and timing of his Father in heaven. Whatever might have happened if Jesus had stayed is irrelevant. Jesus had a divine appointment to keep with a Samaritan woman. By grace, people were following Jesus. The gospel was working. It was expanding. It was alive and well. According to verse 2, the disciples were baptizing a lot of people under Christ's authority. And it's likely that Jesus didn't directly baptize in order to alleviate pride in those that he would have baptized. I mean, imagine that. Well, I was baptized by God. You know, you would have a little edge on everyone else who maybe was baptized by Paul or by Peter or by someone else. So Jesus left Judea and headed again for Galilee, which was approximately 60 miles north, and uh, God wanted him to go. God led him there. Jesus was divinely guided. Jesus was divinely guided. Verse 4 says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, why? First, understand the geography a little bit. In first century Palestine, Jerusalem was in the region of Judea to the west of the Dead Sea. About 60 miles north of Judea, about the distance from Mannheim to Locust Lake, was the region of Galilee where Jesus grew up. The most convenient way from Judea in South Palestine to Galilee in North Palestine was through the region of Samaria. That was the the fastest and best way. Now, the history of Samaria is, is not only intriguing, but it's important for this story. Going back to David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was prosperous and united. But in God's providence and through some horrible leadership of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel was divided. Jeroboam became the king of Israel in the north and Rehoboam remained the king of Judah in the south. God's people were now divided into two kingdoms. Eventually, Omri, the commander of the army, became king in the north. Bad king. Not a good man. King Omri purchased a hill and fortified a new capital city, which he called Samaria. Samaria. Samaria became a hotbed of idolatry in the northern kingdom. Well, time passed, and eventually, because of sin... God sent his judgment upon his people. The nation of Assyria captured and conquered Samaria and banished the Israelites to Assyria in the northeast. But a few Israelites remained in Samaria, a small group. No more Israelite northern kingdom. Assyria now reigned. Assyria now dominated, a pagan people. Under Assyrian power, something significant happened. To replace the vacancy of Israel in Samaria, 2 Kings 17.24 tells us this. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kathah, Avah, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Now, why is that important? Now you have pagan nations moving into what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. 
Culture had dramatically changed. God's people, what few of them were left in Samaria, were now living among pagan people, pagan nations. This is particularly important when it comes to marriage and family. Are you following me there? Sparse pickings among Israel, new pagan nation comes in, intermarriage starts to happen with God's people and pagan nations. Years before, God instructed his people not to intermarry with pagan nations. Why? Don't think it was a racial thing. It had nothing to do with skin color or ethnicity. God gives the reason in Deuteronomy 7, 4. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. It's not a racial prohibition. It's a spiritual prohibition. Now, young people, if, if you're not married, you're a young person, I want you to listen. Please listen to God on this. Young people, if you love Jesus Christ and are committed to him before committing to marry someone of any color on your wedding day, make sure they love Jesus Christ most as well. Don't even waste your time dating unbelievers. This is, that's not God's design. This is a principle from the Old and New Testaments both. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And as that applies to marriage, it has nothing to do with ethnicity. That is very important for us to know. With racism still very alive, it has nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with faith in Christ. The Jews left in Samaria disregarded God's design of marrying within the faith, and a new ethnicity was created. Half Jews, half Gentiles, called Samaritans. Can you see why racial tension arose between Jews and Samaritans once the Jews returned to Samaria to find this mix? A poisonous hatred developed between Jews and Samaritans. Along with racial tension, there was also theological tension. The Samaritans did not worship in Jerusalem. The epicenter of Jewish worship, Mount Gerizim, was established instead. Also, the Samaritans considered only the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, to be authoritative, and they dismissed the rest. That would not have sat well with a Jew. Now back to John 4. Can you see why racial tension caused most Jews to prefer not to travel through Samaria? If there was another way to go around Samaria, they would want to take it. They don't want to go through Samaria. And there was another way, but it was quite inconvenient. I read that some Jews actually crossed the Jordan River traveled along the river on the eastern side until they bypassed Samaria and then crossed the Jordan River once again, moving into Galilee. All of that extra time and hassle just to bypass the Samaritans. Verse 4 says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That's a little peculiar. Jesus is Jewish. Do you understand a tension that should be there? But he's far from a racist. Maybe John wrote verse 4 because through Samaria was the shortest, most convenient route to get to Galilee. 
And so in one sense, Jesus needed to go that way. That's possible. But something else is here, I think, that you'll find interesting. Verse 4 says, Jesus a day or had to pass through Samaria. The Greek word a day shows necessity and inevitability. He had to. In other words, it was God's certain design for Jesus to pass through Samaria. God predestined a divine appointment for Jesus to keep with the Samaritan woman at the well. It was divine destiny. God purposefully took Jesus through Samaria to reveal his glory and power and grace to a broken woman. Do you believe God works in this way? He does. The Bible teaches that God has an eternal purpose. That God determines events in our lives before they happen according to his sovereign will and all for his glory. John 4 shows a gracious God, a loving God, pursuing a broken woman by the power and design of his will and grace through his human son, Jesus. Jesus is divine and human. Jesus is divine and human. Verse 5 says Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Sychar was near a field that Jacob purchased years before from Hamor in Genesis 33, a place that was called Shechem. Jacob had given this land to his son Joseph as a gift in Genesis 48 and then later mentioned in Joshua 24. In Sychar is Jacob's well, really a living well, a bubbling well, or a well fed by a fountain or spring underneath. Jacob's well is in modern-day Nablus, inside of a crypt of a church named St. Fotina near Ba'ar Yaakob Monastery in the West Bank. This is an actual place. I wanted to bring it up on Google Earth so you could travel there with me and see that these places that the Bible records, they're actual places you can visit. There is a Jacob's Well, and it is in modern-day Nablus. According to Greek tradition, Fotina is the name of the woman at the well. Now, we don't know that, for sure, but that's why the, the uh, I believe it's a Greek Orthodox church, is uh, named St. Fotina. Uh, Jesus had walked close to 30 miles, so it's understood that he would be wearied from his journey. This is tough terrain, and he's walking. Uh, Jesus got tired. His body was exhausted. Jesus is a human being. One of the first heresies of the church was docetism, derived from the Greek word dokeo, meaning to seem or appear. Docetism basically said Jesus only appeared to be a human being. He wasn't really human. He just looked like he was. The problem with that view is that all throughout the Gospels, Jesus experiences hunger and thirst and pain and senses. Of course Jesus would be tired after walking from Judea to Samaria on rugged terrain. He didn't teleport there. He walked. And it was, it was hard walking. His, his exhaustion squares with what we did uh, months ago in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal word became a human being. God in the flesh got tired. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why did God take on human flesh? 
verse 14 and 15, tell us that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He became like us to die in our place, to defeat sin, to defeat death and Satan and hell and to deliver us. John Calvin wrote, he did not pretend weariness, but was actually fatigued for in order that he might be better prepared to exercise for the exercise of sympathy and compassion toward us. He took upon him our weaknesses. He was like you, so he could identify with you and stand in your place on that cross, to hang in your place on that cross. If God doesn't come to us, the cross doesn't happen. If the Son of God does not live in the flesh, the cross doesn't happen, and we have no atonement for our sins. But Jesus did come, and we do have a sure atonement on that cross. Jesus knows how tired you can become. He knows about your everyday struggles and frustrations. Never forget that God came to us seeing and hearing and touching and smelling and tasting as one of us. It was the sixth hour, probably about 12 noon by Jewish time or 6 p.m. by Roman time. Good scholarship and my personal view is that it was... uh, 12 noon at the hottest part of the day and Jesus is tired and thirsty and here she comes. Jesus is ready for this interaction. It was a divine appointment. Jesus divinely pursues. Jesus divinely pursues. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now what's Jesus going to do? Remember, he's exhausted, likely very thirsty and hungry. His disciples went into town to buy some food. Why not just sit beneath a tree in the shade and ignore this woman until the food comes? That's what I would have done as a Jewish man. She was a woman of Samaria. That's two strikes against her. Woman and Samaritan. To illustrate how intense the societal bigotry was against women of Samaria, D.A. Carson notes this. Within a generation of Jewish leaders, law would be codified that reflected long-standing popular sentiment to the effect that all daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle and therefore perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanness. For a Jew, a woman of Samaria was unclean from birth. And if you read Leviticus, when we get there, Um, the detail, painstaking detail to preserve cleanliness among God's people. It'll show you how absolutely important cleanliness was to the Jew. Women drew water together when it was cool, not at 12 o'clock noon. She came alone at midday, probably because of her immoral lifestyle, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. Imagine shame that is having so much shame that it directs your everyday routine. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus talked to her. He talked to her. That's the kind of guy he was. Give me a drink. Give me a drink. That doesn't happen. Nobody says that. 
That flat out does not happen. Jesus cut right through social and racial prohibitions because he cared. Religious leaders did not converse with immoral women, but Jesus cared more about revealing the truth to her than about social precedent. He paid her attention because God was graciously pursuing this woman. God is taking the initiative with her. It was sovereign grace in action. His address was so countercultural that it confused her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? It's like she was saying, are you aware that we don't like each other? But it's more than racism. Jesus has nothing to drink from. He doesn't have a water container. She does. So asking her for a drink is revealing a willingness in the heart of Jesus to drink from her water container. That doesn't happen. That flat out does not happen. Why? Verse 9 says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That phrase, no dealings, is one Greek word. Sugraomai. Used only once in the New Testament, and it's here. And the word commonly means to make joint use of. So one way to understand it is that it means association, but another one is that you, you don't use the same stuff. Now, I'm not sure how accurate it is to say that Jews and Samaritans never interacted. The disciples obviously went into town to buy food from Samaritans. But Jews and Samaritans certainly did not drink from the same water jar. And I love it. Jesus is awesome. He disregarded precedence. He didn't even care. Because of grace. Because of grace. Any other Jew would have feared being unclean. But Jesus, he is never unclean. He is pure in the absolute sense. D.A. Carson wrote something that absolutely struck me. He wrote, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. He sanctifies what he touches. Any other Jews would have feared being unclean, but not Jesus. Because what Jesus touches, he makes clean. That's why he showed more dignity to the disabled and diseased than anyone else did. He made them clean. Folks, we are this Samaritan woman. We are shattered and unclean. We carry heavy burdens of shame. And then we encounter a man who reaches out to us, who knows us and changes our lives forever. This is Jesus. He doesn't care about social mores. He cares about people and about giving grace so his Father is glorified in grace. Jesus gives gracious and divine living water. Folks, I need this this morning. She's perplexed, but Jesus exposes a more perplexing matter. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What is perplexing is that this woman can talk face to face with God and not ask him for eternal life. That's what's perplexing. She doesn't know the gift of God. She doesn't know Christ, the Son of God. She has yet to experience this living water of God. She is unconverted. She's spiritually dead in sin. And she doesn't understand that living water is right in front of her. 
Jesus is the gift. Salvation is absolutely a gift of God. Unless God gives, we don't receive. God is at work all around us, but sin in our lives, it veils his glory from our eyes. We can't see him like we ought. Not until God breaks through, breaks through with the gospel by divine generosity and gives and lavishes on us. When I was a kid, I would go to my closet in my bedroom looking for a specific shirt. And I would go through. And I'm not finding the shirt. Folks, the shirt's not there. But I wanted to wear that shirt. So I'm looking at this, can't find it, no shirt. Hey, mom, can you come in? I can't find my shirt. Multiple times, I kid you not, my mother would walk in there and go right to the shirt and pull it out. It's like a superpower that these moms have. Bam, there the shirt is. Mom, it was not there a minute ago. It showed up out of thin air. I don't know what's going on with your magic stuff. I'm scared right now, Mom. That shirt was not there. You're creeping me out. The shirt was there. I missed it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. So often we look at life and completely miss the extraordinary hand of God's grace behind it all. The woman couldn't see it. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's thinking H2O chemical compound. That's what she's thinking. Not water to quench the thirst of her soul. She asked, are you, this is a funny question, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Does Jesus have a well to give that is greater than Jacob's really deep well? Imagine the entire Seattle Seahawks team. If they're a better football team, like ask them, Seattle Seahawks, are you a better football team than the Mannheim Central Barons? Let's not forget they're the 2003 state champs. State champs. Jesus created Jacob. He causes the fountain to gush beneath the well of Jacob by the word of his power. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He even created this Samaritan woman who's asking the question, and he knows her story inside and out. Of course Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jesus is God. Jesus is the divine living water that quenches the thirst of the soul. Jesus is the divine living water that quenches the thirst of our soul. Jesus responds to her in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This woman needed to keep coming back to Jacob's well. She couldn't hang it up. She had to get water. So she kept coming back to draw water. The water from the well was helpful, but it wasn't sufficient to quench her thirst. Not even sufficient to quench her physical thirst. Water is a created thing. And therefore, by its nature, is unable to perpetually satisfy us. Our soul thirst is too severe to be satisfied with created things. This is really clear in Jeremiah 2, 12 
through 13, 12 and 13. Profound words for us. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is what we do. We turn away from God who is the fountain of living waters, a fresh, clean, invigorating fountain to be enjoyed fully and forever. We walk from that fountain to the desert to dig this deep, dry cistern. It's cracked. It doesn't hold water. It's leaky. It's murky. It's muddy. Stagnant reservoirs, and we lap it up, thinking that it will meet our need and quench our thirst. We drink from our idols to our own destruction. Our soul will not be refreshed by stagnant, murky, sandy water. We want the fountain of living water. This is why fashion and alcohol and education and garages filled with toys leave us thirsty. It's all cracked. It's all leaking. But Jesus said in verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see the parallel that Jesus is is drawing from the practical Jacob's well in front of the woman and this spiritual welling up inside, bubbling up, That leads to eternal life. That well of refreshing water is in the man, not outside of the man. There is water that will finally quench your thirst, my friends. Drink it and never be thirsty again. This water surpasses every other cool and refreshing mountain spring. One time when I was in uh, Virginia with my cousins walking through, I was a little kid, we found this little puddle of a spring, a really cool mountain spring. It was very, very good. And right there, natural, part of, part of all nature, it was awesome. And so Jesus surpasses that spring. You can't get fresher, more refreshing than Jesus. By drinking this water, it will become in you an ever-flowing spring of thirst-quenching water that gushes to eternal life. But you have to drink it. You have to lap it up. This water is meant to be gulped and tasted and swallowed. Now understand the impact that Jesus' words would have had on this Samaritan woman. She may never have to draw water again in her mind. Like, I never have to come back here. There's a water that I can eliminate this work and eliminate my thirst. And so her response is so honest and practical, probably what any of us would have said. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Give me the water. I want that water. I'll gladly give up the work. I'll gladly give up the rope and the little bucket and the, you know, the burns on my hands if I let it slip and, and uh, walking through the hot sun. I'll give all that up for that kind of water. But she's missing the much more profound point. What water can Jesus give her? Eternal life in himself and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the divine thirst-quenching water. His Holy Spirit lives inside all drinkers 
as the flowing stream unto eternal life. Notice two important things from the passage. Jesus gives the water. The water is sovereign grace. It's a gift. And when Jesus gives His saving grace to us, His Holy Spirit to us, he, it will become in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When Jesus gives the water, it will quench your thirst. That's what it's intended to do. You won't go on being perpetually thirsty. No more thirst forever. Secondly, in order to never be thirsty again, you need to drink. You need to drink. Followers followers of Jesus are heavy drinkers. Heavy, heavy drinkers. Drinkers of divine thirst-quenching water. What does Jesus mean by drinking? He's using figurative language for faith. For faith. I take Jesus to mean belief in him. In John 6.35, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So if you trust in Christ, if you believe in him, that spiritual thirst, no longer there. You're not going to thirst through faith. The profound thirst of the soul is quenched by grace through faith. How is that? How is it that the overwhelming thirst of your soul can be satisfied by putting your complete trust in Christ alone because he gives you water and saves you by grace. Drinking is a response to the powerful grace of God in your life. God is calling you in the gospel to drink deeply of Jesus Christ, to swear allegiance to him, to cherish him, to treasure him, his life, death, and resurrection for you. And if you do, If you drink, you won't be thirsty. You'll be satisfied. At a great feast in John 7, 37, Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, what does he mean? Well, Jesus continues, verses 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. When you drink deeply of Jesus Christ by faith, he satisfies your soul with himself, and he puts the source of the thirst-quenching water in you. So as you're thirsty, it just keeps meeting your need. You just keep drawing from this Holy Spirit of truth and grace and mercy in you. You're not going to grow thirsty with the Holy Spirit. He is the living water. Jesus is sharing the gospel with the Samaritan woman. Her only hope of soul satisfaction. William Hendrickson wrote, Jesus appeals to her craving for ultimate rest and satisfaction. That he does. That he does. Look at how water and the Holy Spirit are linked in Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. How mouth-watering is the grace of God. Inside of all of us is an emptiness, a thirst. We are dry ground, ready to soak up water, needing to be watered. And though it may seem like our thirst is for earthly things, if if you're living where I'm living, I'm wrestling with this tension of thirsting for earthly things. And, And don't be confused, 
to say, that's what I really long for, we're dehydrated because we have lost God. Why does our flesh thirst for sex and alcohol and approval and entertainment to an unholy degree? Why do we even thirst for that stuff? Our desires are corrupted and we drink from insufficient, broken and cracked cisterns. Every one of your sinful desires and lusts is communicating to you how dehydrated your soul really is and how you need to drink of God. The sons of Korah expressed in their song, Psalm 42, 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. One of the lyrics of King David was, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. We are spiritually thirsty people. Do you know what God is saying to you this morning? I hope you're hearing him loud and clear. Come, anyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah 55, 1. You don't have money. You're thirsty, but you can't afford to go buy yourself a drink to quench that thirst. But have no fear, there's someone who can pay for that drink for you. And his name is Jesus. And he paid for it with his life, so drink. Just keep drinking. Because it's paid for. And you're thirsty. And we need to drink. Psalm 36, 8 and 9 says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. I love that verse. I just want to be delighted. So let me drink from this river, this flowing, massive body of water called Christ and lap it up and be satisfied with pleasure of God, with his delight, for with you is the fountain of life. The point of John, including this account with the Samaritan woman in his book, is to help you bow down to the river and to drink of God's everlasting delights. The fountain of life, the living well, and to drink your thirst away in Jesus Christ. Some of you need to take the first sip. You need to trust Christ this morning. I don't believe we're all saved here. I think some of you need to drink For the first time, drink. And I think some of you need to keep drinking. You need to just keep drinking. And remind yourself, I'm constantly dependent upon Christ. I need to just drink from his grace. The man from the Dos Equis commercials, he says, stay thirsty, my friends. Have you seen that guy? Stay thirsty, my friends. The joy of the gospel is we don't have to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. We give you thanks because you're an amazing God. A God that has given us incredible things. And God, I pray that you will remind us of how deeply we need to drink of Jesus Christ. God, remind us of the faith that we should have in him. And God, I pray that right now, if someone is like, I've never sipped that, I've never drank of Jesus that deeply. God, that that you would lead them to drink this morning. Just remind them all they need to do is completely die to themselves. 
to put off the old self and to put on the new self of Jesus Christ, trusting him alone for their salvation. That happens in the heart by your sovereign grace. So I pray that that happens this morning and that you build our church. God, help us to uh, glorify your name. Help us to enjoy you above all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.